Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. Joining me today on the line is an old friend of mine, a fellow podcaster and a professor of political science at University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, Nick Kiersey. Thanks for coming on the program. Thanks, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. So you are a podcast host yourself. You've been at it uh, at least as long as I have. Maybe you, I think you started before I did, but yours is a, a more, I, yeah. it sort of has a regular production <laughs> schedule, if you will. Uh, yeah, so, it's more like a hobby, to be honest. But uh, you yeah, put out some real banger episodes. Tell the, tell thank the you, listeners thank you. what that podcast is, and, and they should check it out. Yeah, it's called Fully Automated, and it's kind of an offshoot of a blog that I started years ago called Occupy IR Theory. I suppose my primary identity is as an IR theorist or international relations theorist. And uh, like everywhere else in the early part of the decade, uh, uh, we were all caught up with the Occupy movement. And uh, the question was, you know, what can ir theory do with occupy what should ir theory be doing in response to occupy so uh we set up a big facebook group there's still like 2000 plus members in that i mean it's still i won't say people post there as frequently as they used to but it's it's going and um it, i think it was the first time in the history of ir as a discipline that we really started thinking about um you know what it might mean to listen to a theory of world politics that sort of came from the streets right um and we were all thinking very carefully about horizontalism um what it meant to be prefigurative in the face of insurmountable power um uh, you know how another world might be possible but of course, that moment came and went, and, and we all know the story. Uh, there's so many media sites, uh, outlets that that would sort of that their histories would be as much caught up in that genealogy as as what I'm talking about. So, you know, you can trace that trace that that history uh, in a number of ways. But I think where we are now, of course, is a is a realization, for better or for worse, that uh, you know that it, that it's not that easy. You can't just um, imagine another world and enacted on the streets that you do have to confront power so uh fully automated uh kind of came out as a response to i think the frustration that many of us had in terms of 2016 the election of donald trump the defeat of hillary clinton the defeat of bernie sanders but somehow this sort of optimism that was there nevertheless as expressed in organizations like the democratic socialists of america and others that um, that somehow another strategy was in the offing. That 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 somehow we could become a party or become parties. That somehow we could maybe enter the state. Somehow we could commandeer the commanding heights of technology, create a world where we didn't have to work as much. Uh, that we could live more dignified lives. That we could actually, through the level of careful policy planning, achieve a, a more equal society. So. So, of course, it's a riff on the term fully automated luxury communism, right? right so right. Um, I think it's just it's it's a kind of a way of trying to draw attention in the it, it's not necessarily a podcast about fully automated luxury communism by any means, but it does seem to sort of occupy a place at the conjunction of a debate about the end of capitalism, what that might look like, what shape it might take. 
and um, the responsibility that I think my discipline has to speak in the vernacular, to engage in public conversations and not just sort of be a ivory tower project. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're involved there in uh, a, what I think is a noble fight, one that uh, really animated the the beginnings of DPS. The reason why I got into it was to sort of not only intervene politically and get some of these conversations out from the back channels into the into the mainstream, if you will, but also to to try to politicize this space of academia, which is like some of our, our best and brightest and most talented thinkers are are essentially shut-ins, you know, focusing on these hyper specific, you know, footnotes on footnotes on footnotes types of debates. Yeah. And it's a real waste of of the the public intellectual resources that that could be potentially at our disposal to think through some of the most pressing and, and serious questions of the day and and most of us now, me being now a former academic, I'll tell you that you just don't have enough. I don't have enough hours in the day to sit down in, in dusty libraries and and think through these things very carefully. And and most people in the working class don't either. And so we do need a division of labor. And it's it's encouraging, I think, now that that there are people not only in your discipline and your subfield, but also in this broader socialist ecosystem uh, who who have the luxury of making a living, uh, wh- whether it's good or bad, I don't know. That's that's another question. But making a living, uh, using their brains and thinking seriously, but also in an engaged and and grounded sort of way. So yeah, people should check out that podcast. You've had some real bangers Thanks, man. in your episodes. Yeah, Thank and, you. and I mean, this is really relevant, I think, to to the broader discussion we're going to have today for the A side, which is carving out space for a post neoliberal society. And I talk a lot about this in the public ownership series that I'm that I'm sort of in the midst of right now. I'm not sure when that's going to be over. It may, it may just you know we we may uh, we may check out but never leave. I don't know. Uh, public ownership, I think, is is something that I really do think it's on the cutting edge, and and not enough people are talking about it right now. I think a lot of people are really hesitant. They might be a little scared of it. I know I was. I was very skeptical of things like co-ops and things co-ops, like that. Yeah. And, until very recently, when you start thinking in a much more nuanced and holistic strategic way that we're going to lay out here. But but before we address what post-neoliberalism might look like, we need to address what neoliberalism is and what it does, where it came, not only where it came from, and I've had many episodes talking about where it came from, but what is neoliberalism in 2019? Because it's a word that really is, is thrown around here and there, sort of willy-nilly to and fro. I'm guilty, as most people are. And you yourself, you're a scholar of neoliberalism. You study this stuff very carefully. You've written quite a lot about it. It looms large in your discipline, for sure. It's got to be one of the most commonly you know, invoked pieces of jargon on the academic circuit right now. You do a, a word search for neoliberalism, and it just explodes out there. You know, I once saw an article about uh, the question of neoliberal salmon, you know, salmon, <laughs> like, the, like the fish. And, yeah. and, that, and that salmon itself, as it came up as an industry, as a fish, biologically, uh, economically, even politically and socially, the fish itself is a neoliberal construct. <laughs> and honestly, but like, believe it or not, the article wasn't terrible. It was actually very compelling and persuasive. And it, and it, it spoke uh, a lot of uh, it, it, truth with a lot – produced a lot of insight about like what it means uh, to have uh, neoliberalism as, an, as a sort of – construct sort of overdetermine uh, every aspect of our society and our being uh, such that, you know, 
neoliberal salmon, <laughs> Nick, for fuck's sake. <laughs> anyway, you're a scholar of neoliberalism. I had this sort of uh, visualization of a salmon uh, popping up out of a river uh, with his top hat on going, you know, have you been entrepreneurial today? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, but um, no, I mean, I think you're right. The, the, uh, the 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 broad problem i suppose now is and you only need to take a 5 minutes of your life which of course you'll never get back again and dip into twitter uh to see how quickly and widely this term is used largely in a pejorative sense and of course i'm down with that right because i i don't like neoliberalism but it it seems to have lost a lot of its precision uh in in the popular usage and i i think we could all do ourselves a favor by kind of coming back to the origins of the term a little bit and trying to sort of reground ourselves in some of the debates about what it is and what it isn't. Now, th there is uh, a very fertile uh, terrain here to think about, and not everyone agrees with everyone, right? Uh, one of the big questions right now, I know, in the field of international political economy concerns this question of authoritarian neoliberalism, because, of course, we have today with uh, President Trump and many debates going on about the a, a sort of a fascist or authoritarian turn in, in a number of countries around the world. We, this is not your granddad's uh, neoliberalism anymore, right? That, that, that the term that Naomi Klein was originally talking about or others, you know, way back in the, the sort of um, Seattle days, seems to have been sort of like more like a radical free market ideology. Today, it seems the state is much more involved and so uh, the question would be, you know, does does neoliberalism have a relationship to democracy? It seems once upon a time, our theory of neoliberalism was kind of a no logo theory, right? That it was more about like false consciousness, brainwashing, you know, uh, a, a, an ideology that had been perpetrated or a fraudulent ideology that had been perpetuated upon us. But such um, that neoliberalism is something that you could choose to either be or not be. Really yeah, good. yeah. Or if you like just a, saw the a, world the right way, you wouldn't be a neoliberal, right? Yeah, you know, if you yeah, just woke yeah. up, you wouldn't be, right? So it's a very matrixy, matrix uh -huh. kind of cultural uh, moment there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Red pill, blue pill. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so today the question would be, you know, well, what, what is the role of the state? Has, has neoliberalism uh, under Trump and others, Bolsonaro, kind of revealed its true face? So, I mean, I think the basic big argument that a lot of political economy people anyway, and, and I'll, I'll limit it to them initially, because I think, you know, that's where I come from. So, um, you know, I think especially after 2008, the question was, can we see, can we understand that neoliberalism is a political project? And that was an important contribution. And you've had other guests to say this, I'm not the first one to come on your show to make this point. But the, the point was I think that a lot of radicals, a lot of leftists might simply have been using the term to refer to a kind of a radical deregulation or a radical free market ideology. And of course, this, that's true in a major way. But what we were learning, I think, um, through reading books like Foucault's Birth of Biopolitics lectures, for example, and I appreciate there's some controversy surrounding that, so we can skirt back to this later. But what Foucault always offers us is this interesting term genealogy, you know, so what is the actual intellectual family tree of this project? And if you go, if you trace it back, what are they actually saying? David Harvey had already done some good work on this, I think, although maybe missed a couple of points. But, you know, what you find is people like Hayek, Gary Becker, whatever, already quite emphatically saying that, look, this is a project of changing people.
right? The In Thatcher's terms, you know, the point is to change the soul. So that is what we mean when we say neoliberalism is a political project. And it's not just, um, you know, a free market for free market's sake or for the point simply of, of profit. There's a, I mean, it is for the point of profit, but the point is also to get everyone on board with this sort of way of living, this way of acting, this way of interacting, um, seeing human life as, 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 a, as an aggregation of individual activities in this sphere, ever, ever expanding sphere called a marketplace. So neoliberalism in this sense wants market forces to dominate our lives in as many ways as possible, because that's what it thinks the best form of government is, right? So there's a kind of a, a normative agenda there, um, which I think is probably connected to capitalism, but seems to stand aside from it a little bit, right? It's its, its own little culture. You could see it as symptomatic of capitalism, certainly, but I don't think it's necessarily the case that it's just a uh, in a blunt sense or a crude sense, a capitalist ideology. Right, right. But the problem that we run into, some people will say that you know, some people will say that neoliberalism is is quite simply nothing other than capitalism without the the side of the class struggle represented by the working class. That it's 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 the result of capitalism shorn of working class struggle, one wherein the capitalist class and its fra- various fractions uh, have more or less, for lack of a better word, neutered the ability of the working class to intervene in political, social, or economic matters. And I think that, that you know, I think Vivek Chibber has made that argument on this very show. Uh, Adolf Reed has made this argument on this very show. And I think it's if you're speaking to a general audience, particularly like, say, a, a group of trade unionists or something, it's like, what is this fucking neoliberalism word you guys are throwing around all the time? We say oh, it's just it's capitalism, uh, w- but without the workers, uh, the, the you know the workers being able having the structural or political or economic power to intervene. It's like, oh well, that makes sense to me. But you seem to be suggesting something a little bit more nuanced. I just I think I am, yeah, that. and I and I and I'm never fully sure of the answer here, but I I think I've got some sort of important flags that I want to put down. That, that I think sort of set out the terrain of the problem a little bit. Because, you know, it, I, I think I think one of the issues that we run into, for example, if all we do, and I, this is where I'm kind of agreeing with you and Chibber and others, uh, for sure, you know, if you divorce capitalism from the analysis too much, you lose a lot of the context with uh, for neoliberalism's emergence. And um, so, you know, I think if you want a simple explanation of this, you can do a lot worse than watch Adam Curtis's documentary, Hypernormalization where I think he sort of shows in pretty good way, you know, that neoliberalism wasn't just some intellectual project that came down from on high and took over our lives. Now, of course, it did to some extent, but it did so in a world that was already primed for it. And this is where I think capitalism really is important itself as a cultural project. And and we lose this sometimes in these debates. Uh, Neoliberalism arrived in a world that was already devastated by by economic crisis, by the collapse of the post, or what, at least the sort of ongoing at the time collapse of the post-war global economy and the global economic consensus that pertained around it, call it Keynesian economics, call it what you will, mixed economy was 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 definitely part of it. So you know this is a world where what you might want to call something like a, a confessional logic of capitalism. I'll elaborate what I mean by that. Um, what was suddenly finding itself triumphant in a world where there weren't really any other alternative framings uh, around. So 
a confessional logic of capitalism is, of course, largely to do, and Marx talks a little bit about this, but, you know, it's, it's our relationship to money and it's our kind of emotional relationship to money where we sort of see, use money in an iconic fashion to, to give us a kind of a way of seeing equivalence between different spheres of human activity. Yeah. So, you know, he says we're we hold, already, what is it? He says mm, we hold please. our bond and our relationship with society in our pocket. That's kind of the, the way that yeah, our money is, is we hold it in our pocket and that, that is, that defines in capitalism anyway, the sort of the commodity fetish and, and also the, the sort of social relations of capitalist production mean that the only meaningful and universal social bonds are, you know, we hold them in our pocket. Anyway, just wanted to throw that in. No, it's a great point. And I think um, the uh, hyper-normalization film, just to go back to that for a second, not that I'm like Adam Curtis fanboy or anything, I kind of am, but it's just worth watching again because I think the way it sort of portrays that initial cultural moment, uh, and there's a wonderful scene in there with Patti Smith, and uh, she's sort of adopting this, I guess what academics would call a kind of a flanneristic uh, stance on the world, right? And, you know, it's just this kind of like, okay, I'm I'm not really in this everyday scene that I'm being filmed in right now. I'm a commentator on it. You know, so I'm a commentator in my own life. And she's talking about, you know, the poor people congregating outside the cinema, watching the footage of the films that are going to be shown later that day, the advertisements, what have you. And she's sort of like talking about it almost like it's a neat thing that these poor people are kind of getting their entertainment that way. Like even in their poverty, you see, they're still able to, to, to resist, to find some empowerment. And you're just like, Whoa, that is so cynical, you know, but that is, I think there's something in that, that I think we really need to focus on because of course you can probably blame neoliberalism for that to an extent, because of course, neoliberalism was a, a guiding ideology that was really gaining power at that time. And there were a lot of public services being cut. There were a lot of things being maybe privatized that shouldn't have been privatized, what have you. It was, of course, a time of economic recession. But I don't think necessarily that neoliberalism is the uh, is, is its own manure, right? It, it has to find its manure somewhere else. And so that idea of finding the bond in your pocket, I think, already indicates to Marx and, and to, to people who read this a certain way that, that there's a kind of... Um, already an individualizing force at work in uh, the money relation, right? That we, that, that just simply by the fact of the success of this thing. And one great scholar that I'd point people to here, in fact, I'm kind of paraphrasing a lot of his work as I'm talking here. I hope I'm representing him in a, in a coherent fashion, but uh, Martin Konings, you know, has really done great work here, you know, on capitalist time and capitalist money Maybe we can put a link to that in the show notes, but you yeah, know, yeah, for that, sure. he, that, was a, he was a student of Leo Panitch's at yeah, uh, York. So yeah, a lot of yeah. resonances there, but also very unique in a, in a way. Um, and even, I would even call his work idi- idiosyncratic in the best way possible. You know, it's very unique people who are interested in neoliberalism, maybe scholars out there. If you haven't read Martin, check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Because the puzzle, I think he's kind of stepping into, which is the same puzzle that really motivates my work, to be honest. I do a lot of stuff on Ireland and I have an on-again, off-again book project, which I hope to finish one of these days um, on the Irish financial crisis and subsequent recovery, um, or, well, recovery in 
scare quotes, of course, because it's 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 a questionable phenomena. But recovery, um, recovery? Yeah. Question mark. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, you know, is 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 where does our kind of commitment to to all of this austerity come from? Right? Like like for some, austerity is a neoliberal project, and it's an expression of neoliberal politics. But I think you have to kind of take a step a step back from that sometimes uh, when you look at a case study like the Irish one, uh, which I am so close to. If you can't tell from my accent, I was born there. But um, the fact is the Irish, and I'm going to maybe get grief on Twitter for saying this, but the Irish didn't really <laughs> protest austerity, right? There, there was a spectacularly huge uh. protest for about a, ongoing rolling on and off for about a year against water privatization. But that was not a particularly anti-capitalist expression. If you look at the rhetoric surrounding it, if you look at yeah. the framing of it, but well, academics can that, turn anything yeah. into an anti-capitalist uh, expression, right? Like we just, it's that false consciousness. Well, if you strip away the false consciousness, this is clearly an anti-capitalist demonstration. It's like, ah, is it really? Yeah, I yeah, I mean, yeah. You put your finger on it. They're you put clearly your responding. Right on it. They're clearly responding to a crisis, but that's just the thing, right? Capitalism has a way of of refracting what are in essence uh, capitalist crises, but they they express themselves. They appear as Marx and, and Harvey likes to emphasize in Marx. They appear in these other sorts of ways, which which have political and strategic trajectories that leave capitalism safe. Honestly, I mean, you know, pretty pretty intact and safe from you know threat. So, I mean, if you want to sort of just stay with the Irish thing just for a second, not I don't. I obviously don't want to talk about this too much because it could get in deep into the weeds. But the the puzzling thing about the Irish case is that there was very little by way of any kind of political reaction from the population, except in very micro fashion. And there were there are a number of academic pieces, well written, to be honest, and well motivated, you know, sort of looking at these micro pockets of resistance here and there and sort of making a big deal of them as kind of like, oh, you see, the people are resisting and and power never perpetuates itself unperturbed by resistance, right? But it would be a huge stretch of the imagination, on the other hand, to say Ireland had anything like a Syriza moment. And I guess the key question for me, as I respond to your question about what neoliberalism is in 2019, is how do we interpret that kind of acquiescence? Now, because there are some who are going to say neoliberalism is a giant fraud perpetuated upon us, something like this, and that we, the ordinary people or whatever, have had no role to play in it. And on the one hand, yeah, I, it's clear that neoliberalism believes itself to be a cultural project and has proven to be largely successful. So, you know, its ambitions have largely been uh, affirmed in the world. But on the other hand, I think that that question of how ordinary people are brought along with these projects and how they can come to see austerity as their life raft, you know, um, that's really important. And if you are curious about that kind of thing, you're going to end up going down the road of, of Martin Konings and people like this. Now, in an Irish context, you're going to have people who are wanting to talk about Catholic teachings, you know, like the influence of Catholicism in Ireland and Ireland already being a kind of a deeply confessional society. Or you'll talk, you'll hear people talk about the relative absence of the left in the history of Ireland's uh, political development. And both of those are great points. And there's a lot of, you know, useful stuff to, to be thought about there. But just for me, though, I think austerity as an expression of 
capitalism's cultural project. And I forgive the technical term here, but, you know, in philosophy, they use this notion of affect, right? You know, so what is our emotional, almost physiological connection to, to capitalism as a sort of a, as a, as a habit of living? And this is, I think, I think where you find, you know, capitalism isn't just an economistic phenomena, right? Um, it isn't just uh, a market that's out there kind of uh, like it, it sort of it, people talk about uh, Polanyi and Polanyi's kind of dichotomy between the realm of politics and the realm of the market. And, you know, if, if, if the realm of politics isn't paying attention, the realm of the market will encroach upon it and kind of usurp it or something like yeah, this. Right. Whereas actually this is a very different account and says that the market isn't just a cold fiction. Um, it is in fact, uh, something that is deeply invested in emotionally, that it comes from us reproducing our lives and wanting to reproduce our lives in a daily sense in that space of the market. So, so neoliberalism in 2019, I think this is my reaction, I think, to the authoritarian neoliberalism hypothesis again, that's kind of so prevalent now and, and, and with no bad reason, because of course, Trump is there, Bolsonaro is there, and, 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 and there is this, this sort of question mark about incipient fascist energies, whatever. I, we, we can unpack that later, Adam. But my response to that is just to put, hit the pause button for just one second and say, okay, but you do realize neoliberalism itself would never have existed without, again, that fertile manure of our everyday participation and existence in capitalism in the first place. Yeah, right. So, I mean, there, there are a number of ways to go at this. You know, I've, I've had a, a guest on uh, to push back on this idea that that neoliberalism is above above all uh, an ideological phenomenon. And if you look in the literature, if you're an academic, you read dusty books, there's certainly an un... How do I say this? There's certainly an unexamined supposition going into this don't going into this investigation that that we do we need to look at the ideology the claims the statements the writings the books the thought collectives of people and the mont Pelerin society or what have you to explain the rise of neoliberalism and surely that's at at the very least a very one-sided approach to to assessing like why it is we ended up here um but beyond that you know um i think that even the people who emphasize a more, quote, sort of political, economic, materialist explanation for the rise of neoliberalism, uh, which would be, you know, that kind of um, the material versus the ideational debate that I've, that I've hosted here on DPS uh, a couple of months ago, several months ago now. You'd still have to, you'd still be rightly chided by someone like yourself who says, yeah, I mean, those are both limited though, right? Because as Margaret Thatcher said, right, we want to, ch we want to change the souls of, of the people. And it has neoliberalism has infiltrated the very, our, our very souls, not infiltrated in a way from the outside, but it has linked up with uh, a, a long existing so, sort of social psychosocial, even emotional, as Martin Konings would say, emotional uh, aspects of like human existence going back uh, hundreds of years, if not longer. Um, and, and yet like we, we can't fall prey to this thesis that, okay, that means that neo, everything is neoliberal then, right? Your emotions are neoliberal, your po political affiliations, your reactions, your this, your that are neoliberal. 
Um, yeah, certainly- because you know, like in, in 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 just to jump in there, I think that you what you've said is so important because again, to you know, it, it's it's. It's, it's that five toxic minutes on Twitter where you're seeing this term getting thrown around that you actually suddenly realize, wait a minute, the intention of the people who are throwing this term around is to somehow, you know, have us experience this moment of uh, awakening, you know, and, and, and sort of throw off our neoliberal shackles, so to speak, as if then everything's going to be okay. And of course, it doesn't happen because what they lack is a theory of power and a theory of, of how neoliberalism has become powerful, the deep, intimate, uh, and pre-existing social relations that gave rise to neoliberalism's possibility in the first place. Of course, neoliberalism was not, in sort of some sort of teleological sense, predestined to arrive. It emerged as uh, it was struggled for politically. You know, people, politicians, policymakers, think tanks, you name it, all involved in this kind of amorphous but it's nevertheless coherent project of achieving a kind of an intellectual hegemony. But the intellectual hegemony itself only really takes root on the pages of the New York Times, you know, and this is my problem, you know, not again, this might get me in trouble again, but it's the problem that you sometimes see with Gramscianism, right, that it focuses so heavily on organic intellectuals, that it can't really explain why ordinary people get brought along with these projects. Uh, and how they find sort of, uh, you, know, you know, to use to use fancy terminology, maybe, you know, how, how voluntary servitude in an ordinary everyday sense explains the ongoing success of neoliberalism, despite capitalism's increasingly frail, uh, you know, nature, this this ship's going down. And yet here we are. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, I mean, so on the one hand, you know, um, this everything is neoliberal kind of academic, hyper-academic posture that you find on, on places like Twitter, uh, on, on parts of the socialist left, it's certainly in academia, this unmoored conception of neoliberalism that, that gets um, – it's, it's, it's achieved at too far remove from actual capitalism. It's a problem because while on the one hand neoliberalism is successful because it has linked up onto it's it's hitched its wagons and it's a much more longer sort of long-standing emotional psychosocial political economic all the rest of it kind of emotional logics that pre you know you could link it up with uh, Weber's Protestant ethic for sure the kind of austerian impulse behind simplistic living that comes back goes back hundreds if not thousands of years and in this Jesus, you know, I don't, you're it's, it's 100 AD and, you know, and, and the famine has set in and God damn it, you better have some kind of tough minded, austerian approach to survival society and existence or else you're, you're going to be f- fucking six feet under, you know? Um, but, but these, these kind of social, you know, knee jerk dispositions go way, way back and neoliberalism has linked up and hitched its wagons and co-op co I hate this word. Co- I'm trying to say everything I can say, Nick, without saying the word co-opt. <laughs> that's why. Is that because you like co-ops now? <laughs> that's, that's why I'm meandering so fucking much right now. Cause I hate that word. It's awful. It, 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 you lose too much when you, it when sticks you in your throat, it, when you invoke it, but it, it co-ops longstanding sort of things. And yet, right? Like it can't be all encompassing lest we just give way to this totally pessimistic worldview wherein like, I'm not sure why the fuck, why we're, why are we doing this then? Why bother? Why bother talking about politics and socialism? If, if we, you know, I don't know. We just don't think anything can happen, you know, positive. 
Well, I, I suppose I, I don't like have a response to that because I'm not sure you were posing me a question. But what I'll chime in and, and say is, you know, this is actually where I do like Foucault. And, you know, at some point here, we should probably say why I'm a fan of Foucault and yeah, yeah. and, and what, also what he, what and, he said and or, defend or him because, of course, like he gets maligned in the pages of Jacobin. And, you know, I love Jacobin. I'm a Jacobin subscriber. But, you know, he, he gets maligned as some kind of neoliberal avant la lettre and, um, you know, but by the by the left. And meanwhile, you know, mainstream liberals, you know, make that worse because they're reading of Foucault. There's a lot of mainstream liberal academics who are huge Foucault fans, right? But they're mm -hmm. very much stuck in the secondary literature. I insist that if you read Foucault, um, you know, on his own terms, you actually find someone that's very generous towards Marx, right? And yeah. indeed, in one interview, even goes so far as to say, look, he's like, <laughs> it, you asked me why I don't mention Marx? You know, he's like, I'm living in France in the late 1960s. Do you know how many debates are going on about Marx in this country right now? I got Maoists in one ear, you know, I got communists in the other. I just want to like drop out Marx. But he's like, I'll tell you this secret. <laughs> Marx is in everything I do. I just don't mention his name and I don't cite him because I don't want these people annoying me. <laughs> but, you know, well, so, he's not like, wrong. I would be, I would have been completely disgusted by the political culture of the PCF in the 1970s because it was very, uh, it was just very toxic. And, and I'm just, I'm not much of a joiner. I don't know if uh, the listeners out there have picked up on this. I, I think I, we I might have be, noticed, Adam. <laughs> I tend to be something of a black sheep uh, in, in organizational settings because, like, I just have this annoying habit of, like, I see something, I say something. Yeah. And uh, yeah. that kind One of, those, of huh? like unfiltered honesty is oftentimes frowned upon in organizations. Uh, we'll get to this in the B side. Yeah. Everybody hold on tight for that one. But, uh, but, but uh, yeah, I, look, I could, I could quarrel with Foucault and his interpretation of Marx. We're not going to go there now. Let's leave this an open question. But, but I do think it's undoubted that Foucault had some very interesting things to say about uh, the neoliberal. Um, uh, the neoliberal form of, of social regulation that I think goes beyond and uh, uh, the kind of political economic approach of Marx. So talk to the audience about that. Can you repeat your question? Sorry. I just yeah, want to so sure I got that. What is, what is Foucault? I was without sort of giving you too putting too stuffing too many words in your mouth. I let you do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sometimes as a, as an interviewer, like, <laughs> You know, you do this too. You interview people like the. It's like so. Uh, anyway, so Marx said one time that capitalism was really bad and that money was this and that that you know whatever. So tell us about that thing. And it's like, well, I just you just gave me the answer. I'm just going to repeat what you just said. And uh, anyway, so without doing that, without begging the question, uh, or Jesus, uh, Ben Ben Burgess, forgive me. I just used that. Uh, I just used that yes. logical phrase uh, incorrectly. <laughs> There's a little invisible Ben Burgess angel over your head, <laughs> wagging its finger right ben, now. Ben, don't at me, bro. Uh, anyway, without forcing the the answer, uh, what did Foucault say about neoliberalism? Well, I think he basically. Uh, I, I, well, to answer for 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 me to answer that question in a way that makes sense, I kind of have to take a little step back and talk about, um, it's actually, in a way, some of the stuff you were just mentioning a moment ago yourself about sort of the, the, the deeper history in human society, going back hundreds and hundreds of years, maybe even pre-capitalist history, that um, 
already shows how we had a capacity as a species to develop forms of politics that depended on us governing ourselves. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, you know, because obviously you can have a dictatorship, but you know, it, it might not be the most efficient thing on earth because people might not want to work for you, right? Or they might be lazy, they might be recalcitrant, you know, they might be slow. So getting people invested in your political project improves efficiency, it improves outcomes. And and so Foucault in in a in a in a very well-known series of lectures known as the governmentality lectures, um notes that while this has been something that's going on since basically the Roman Empire, if not beforehand, it really kicks up a notch in the Middle Ages um, and specifically then in the late period where you have the advent of what's called the Christian pastoral. So Christianity, interestingly, didn't like the moral, what would you call it, relativism, I suppose, of of religions that were idolatrous, right? That, you know, worship some kind of statue or something like this. And, yeah, and like, like Catholicism. And viewed right? in presence. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, Christianity <laughs> at this point. <laughs> yeah, well, Irish I'm talking to sure, an right? Irishman, for fuck's sake. Yeah, I know, don't, I know. We've got the weeping don't, statues of Mary. Don't raise the issue. So, so you have Christianity sort of solving this problem in this period by replacing the worship of the idolatrous statue with something called the icon right now the icon is a representation of christ but it's not it's not supposed to be literal it's it's figurative and it's imbued with meaning it's it's supposed to really kind of just tell us a story or um, that we can reflect on that we can meditate on and and it's going to tell us a little something if we meditate on it about things that are going on in our lives. Like, so I see myself in this icon. I see some of my struggle in this icon and I can come to truth to that. So it's, it's a kind of a technology. It's a technology of governance, which gets us as subjects, not so much to worship the truth, you know, capital T, capital T, the truth, but to develop a more kind of like intuition based relationship to truth. Like, because what is God? God in Christianity is not you know, this person sitting on a rock or whatever. It's, it's, it's infinite. It's infinite being. It's an ultimately unknowable presence. And so, um, you know, Foucault already is, is sort of noting that Christianity in, in, in sort of presenting the icon to its, um, flock, so to speak, um, is, is using what he calls a, a confessional technology, right? Now, Foucault did not generally have an awful lot to say about capitalism having these sorts of technologies, but Foucault insists that these technologies are the basic bedrock of the entirety of Western civilization beyond this point. So it doesn't matter, like, you know, what, whether it's, you know, the Soviet Union or capitalism or what have you, you know, governmentality is, is, is there. And, um, Capitalism, I think we can argue, does have a confessional um, technology of its own. And we've talked about that earlier on. It's it's money. Capitalism has that uh, same ability. Capitalist money has that same ability, um, that 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 capacity, if you will, to to sustain our faith in something infinite and unknowable. Except this time, it's not God, an infinite God, but our own investment in basically speculation and risk-taking 
you know, and of course now you, you that's a long-winded answer. That's a long-winded setup for an answer, actually, to yeah, a yeah. question that you asked me already some time ago. And uh, but, but I just, let's think about this. Imagine just imagine slaving away for your entire life because you're in debt. Imagine that. And we all do it. I do it. You do it. I've got a tremendous amount of debt. I'm sure you do. Most people in the United States, for sure, have debt. In a way, in an odd, sort of fucked up way, we're lucky to have access to credit because the only thing worse than having debt is not having access to, to debt if you need it. Um, that's the sort of position where we find ourselves in right now. So I just wanted to, yeah, I think I think that little genealogy you, you traced is really important because like, let's not fall prey to uh, thinking through this in a way wherein we naturalize the fact that we are all horribly in debt and that matters and we all we all obey that 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 demand sort of intrinsically obey that demand and we we i I feel bad about my indebtedness you know you feel irresponsible it makes me feel like shit yeah like you're a bad person God, yeah. I went to grad school for a long time. I have a, a six-figure student loan debt. I'm, I, I, I'm very, I'm a very bad boy. I made a bad decision. In my worst moments, when I'm having a shitty day, you know, I fall prey to that kind of, that kind of self-assessment, and that that's not only horrifically destructive, and and it's it's kind of a captures in a nutshell the horrendous condition of mental health and self-conception uh, produced by neoliberalism. But it also uh, demonstrates beautifully that that geneal- genealogy of of the kind of yeah the universality of capitalist logics that 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 uh, have now become you know uh, so so perfected in a cynical sense under neoliberalism. Yeah, sorry to cut you off there, but no, no, it's fine. Way. I I was I was I was being windbaggy. I apologize. But uh, the two, two podcast the- hosts, folks, <laughs> you guys are in for it today. Who All knew? Right? <laughs> No, this is fun because I'm usually the one asking the questions, so I'm kind of out behind them. It's I'm great, isn't it? My interviewers. It's like, great, isn't it? Yeah, hey, podcast anything, hosts Adam. out there, Ask my friends, <laughs> invite me on your show so I can just talk until I turn blue in the face. Pardon the interruption, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this week's A Side with Nick Kiersey. We're having a really difficult, but I think important chat about neoliberalism and the meaning of post neoliberalism. This is a very long episode, so I'll make this short and sweet. This is the part of the program where I invite you to join the 400-some-odd patrons of the Dead Punnett Society in giving your material support to this political and media project. These A-sides may be free to listen to on a weekly basis, but they are not free to make. I rely on the generous contributions of my patrons in order to keep this thing up and running. So if you have learned anything at all, over the past two and a half years from Dead Punnett Society. If you're a weekly listener or a monthly listener, or maybe this is the first episode you've ever heard and you're just waiting to devour the entire back catalog, I invite you to head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a supporter of DPS Media today. Not only will you get the warm and fuzzies of supporting DPS Media and knowing that you are keeping socialist media alive, but you'll also get our weekly B-sides. This week's B-side in particular with Nick Kiersey is fire people. We go all the way in. We talk about the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of today's socialist left. And we really extend our discussion on neoliberalism and post-neoliberalism and apply it to this specific material context. You guys are not going to want to miss that. Patreon.com slash deadpundits. Smash that subscribe button if you are financially able to do so. And if not, well, hey... 
Enjoy the free A-sides each week. Back to the show. No, but that setup, though, that, that idea of like, why I wanted to take a step back and look at some of Foucault's other writings before taking us to this seminal work, which your question was about, uh, Foucault's, you know, views on neoliberalism are most extensively, I'm uh, 99.99% <laughs> elaborated only in one volume. And it's a series of lectures that were only published, actually, I think, like, 2007 or 2008 or something. It was really weird because it was right on the uh, cusp of the financial crisis itself. So, you know, it was, and it was very strange because, you know, again, Western academia, when I say Western, excuse me, Anglo-American academia is what I really mean, has this very sort of, again, anti-Marxist interpretation of Foucault, right? And and it's questionable whether that's accurate or not. But the, this volume suddenly comes out where Foucault is talking about economics and the genealogy of an economic theory, which seems to be in the midst of, uh, or in the middle of capsizing the global financial system. So, um, you know, obviously a lot of careers are at stake. <laughs> yeah. A lot of, a lot of research projects are at stake when this volume comes out. So here is Foucault talking about the genealogy of contemporary neoliberal thought. The book itself was written. The lectures were given in 1978, right? That's in advance of the arrival of Reagan and Thatcher. So it's interesting that Foucault was talking about neoliberalism, sort of intuiting the significance of neoliberalism already before neoliberalism's moment was here. Okay. So now, Adam, the fascinating thing and why it was so important for me to sort of set out my stall a moment ago with going back to governmentality was because these lectures hit the scene and they got interpreted in wildly different ways, right? Now, for some people who read it super closely, but I would wager these were people who hadn't really read much else. I'm going to name some names here, so I hope you're ready. You know, you're going to get a lot of people very committed to something. What, you, know, you get people in, in academia called governmentality theorists, right? And they, in good faith, did recognize Foucault as possibly the first theorist, again, because these lectures were written in 1978, he, he was kind of one of the first people, if not the first person, to grasp neoliberalism as having an anthropological ambition, right? Like to have a, to, in other words, to, he was the first person to, to really delineate what this political project was. And he was the first person to delineate it in a critical sense, i.e. who was not himself a neoliberal, right? Now, one person, one really deep reader here is Philip Murawski, and um, I, I think insofar as Murawski reads this volume of lectures, he has a lot to contribute, but I have some problems and I'll elaborate that in a minute. But he is right that Foucault is telling us here that neoliberalism wants to use markets and government to recast human life, to, to, to make it such that, that we can be governed as economic subjects, even though neoliberalism admits and concedes in distinction to the earlier liberal theorists of like um, John Locke and people like this, you know, that we're not really already economic subjects. Neoliberalism believes that we should be and that if we are made to be, humanity will be all the better for it. Okay. Mm, the, the homo so, economicus kind of yeah, uh, theory. Exactly. Uh, Morawski's key book here is, um, what is it? Never let us a crisis go to waste, I guess is, is the, the key text here talking about the advent of neoliberalism. If people are interested. Yeah. But critically in that book, Murawski says that what's really important about Foucault is that there are too many accounts of neoliberalism that are embedded in Marxist or neo-Marxist traditions and that Marxist concepts of exploitation and surplus value should have no place in a Foucauldian 
analysis, right? So in other words, if you're Foucault, you're so anti-Marxist that you're basically reading this solely as an intellectual project and an intellectual hegemonic project. And that, you know, ongoing pre-existing structural relations, structural phenomena really have no bearing on the financial crisis, our, our affinity, our connection to neoliberalism, right? Um, so that's kind of reaction one. Reaction two would have been in Jacobin magazine, I suppose, and places like that where you have people like, uh, I can't remember his first name, uh, but Zamora. That's uh, uh, Daniel, Daniel Zamora. Daniel Zamora, yeah, yeah. Who's, who's actually, I've, in many respects, I've read some of his other stuff, a fine scholar, so this isn't like a personal thing. But uh, he does say that Birth of Biopolitics is written, uh, you know, in praise of neoliberalism. And I don't necessarily see the evidence for that at all. You know, you know, to claim that Foucault was a neoliberal uh, would seem to almost pay too much attention to Murawski's reading of Foucault and not enough attention to Foucault's own work on this. So, so what I to now finally sort of move to answering your question, I think that um, you have to read Foucault's comments on neoliberal, neoliberalism in continuity with his other work. And as with any other scholar, there are going to be breaks, there are going to be changings of the mind, but there's an overall sort of momentum to Foucault's work where he's interested in how we as, as ordinary folks um, become connected to power, how power gets legitimated in ordinary everyday ways. And neoliberalism is an ordinary everyday political project par excellence. And it just makes so much sense, I think, that, you know, if you're going to read these lectures, which are lectures really on a, solely on the intellectual aspect of it, and not pay attention to all of Foucault's other work, which is deeply, deeply concerned with the physical, infrastructural processes that were built, you know, in, in the history of governmentality to, to, to make sure that subjects stay honest and get punished if they don't stay honest and faithful to these intellectual discourses, you know, you're, you're just being disingenuous. You're, you're, you're kind of throwing out what makes Foucault Foucault. Foucault was deeply, deeply interested in keeping this, the, you know, to use a Marxist idiom, he was deeply interested in keeping the base, the analysis of phenomena in the base there, right alongside and an equal priority to analysis of phenomena going on in the superstructure. Mm-hmm. Now, th- this is all terribly interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm oftentimes, you and I, have, we've had our, uh, our spars over drinks uh, and coffee about Foucault and legacy of Foucault and this and that. I mean, there are some things that I find tremendously, um, you know, valuable and compelling about Foucault. And, and obviously, I mean, he's, I mean, look, does it even matter what I think about Foucault? Foucault is like, uh, he, you know, he has his place in the pantheon right now. It doesn't matter if I like him or not, uh, whether people like him or don't like him. He's a uh, so my point is, I think there are some things that we can quarrel with, certainly, I think, with Foucault or not. or But but let's let's remain sort of somewhat agnostic on those questions. And let's talk about what is it that Foucault really uh, proposes about neoliberalism in terms of re- in terms of us regulating our own behavior that gives us a tremendous amount of insight about what neoliberal society looks like and, and why it is that it has become so deeply entrenched and and why it's so also successful and like you know i think all of us now have this moment where we're looking around us and we're seeing these horrific outcomes with you know the decline in life expectancy wages 
uh, working class power, unionization rates, education, public education is crumbling. Our, our very infrastructure is crumbling out from beneath our, our feet and our vehicles. Um, you know, healthcare is a, you know, terminal crisis, mental health, all the rest of it. We just had a, a string of mass shootings in the United States, which have now just become kind of, um, you know, a work a day in, in our daily news cycle, uh, or in our weekly news cycle, rather. Um, these are the outcomes and everyone surely must look around them and think to themselves, why is our world like this? And yet we're so incapable of, of moving beyond it. So how do we understand why that's the case? Why nonetheless, despite all the horrors, we find it so difficult to transcend. And, and then by way of sort of moving the ball forward a little bit here, what would a post neoliberal society look like and how might we get there? These are massive, massive questions, but I do think you being a scholar of neoliberalism, someone who takes Foucault very seriously can can help us think through this in a way that I think I've only in, in previous weeks been addressing this in purely political economic terms. Okay. Yeah. The second question is is tough. I, I'm going to ask you to remind me to get back to that uh, yeah, question. Yeah. I was just sort of signposting because that is, <laughs> so that's, that's the theme. That's how I introduced this episode. So we, we owe it to our listeners to get there yeah, somehow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll but again, try to land the plane. It's tentative. So, yeah, we're, we're so, Denzel Washington. We've had we uh, we had a bender <laughs> last night. We're still a little drunk. We took a, a tig off a couple airplane bottles in in the bathroom, uh, and and the plane. We're about to fly the plane upside down. All right? Okay, okay. Yeah. Here we go. Um, so you know, just to sort of stay with the first half of the question and tying in, you know, everything from mass shootings to uh, you know protest culture. Um, the the, the 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 cultural orientation of the left the cultural orientation of the right the 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 fact that everyone is trying to win this stuff just by posting uh online um you know i think i'm just going to answer this question more as me than than my reading of foucault per se because i think this is where i start to sort of cross over into my own sort of more speculative thinking but but uh but i i will start with foucault um because i think that what he does offer us as a way of entering into these debates is an, an appreciation of, if you will, the, the, the paradox of neoliberalism. And it's an important paradox. Um, it's, it's the idea that we see ourselves both as entrepreneurial subjects while also seeing us as sort of works under construction, right? Now, now that's important because, you know, we get confused, I think, as, as, a, as human beings it, it, stuck in this game. We get confused as to what we are. And we can, um, you know, there's, uh, gosh, I can't remember the name of the, um, the, the scholar just now, but there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a term called wounded attachments, right? Which is where um, we sort of, you know, because we are, so committed to the idea, and this is where neoliberalism has been hugely successful. We're so committed to the idea of the, uh, us being bearers of our own capital, human capital. Yeah. Um, that's that's that, Wendy Brown, by the way. I just wanted to chime oh, in. Oh, thank you. It yeah, yeah, yeah. Your, your memory in terms I appreciate of, um, that so much. It's one of the um, early critical theory books, one of the first critical theory books I ever read back in uh, yeah, undergrad. Uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think those sorts of terms are, <clears throat> you know, have their place in this conversation um, because, you know, what is the theory of human capital? It's a theory that suggests that, you know, everybody's body has a certain naturally sort of occurring or a capacity for the generation of wealth, right? That we, you have it, I have it, we all have it. It's like the force. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and, and so that 
any kind of activity that involves making a choice, right, uh, or the application of time or energy to one activity as opposed to another activity can be comprehended as, a, as an investment in this sense, right? That we are basically constantly calculating our investment trade-offs. And so, it, and, and, and what does this mean for us as a species, right? This is, this is kind of neoliberalism's answer to the, to the homo economicus is that we are a, we are, we are potentially this productive potential, right? We, we can be brought in relationship to ourselves as a kind of capital in our own right. You know, Marx says that we are not, the proletariat aren't the owners of capital. Neoliberalism comes back right in here and says, actually, yes, we are. And I think what's happened, I mean, the, the testament to neo, neoliberalism's success is I think that more and more you can see people actually do believe this, right? You know, there's a fascinating book. I love to quote it. I think it speaks very powerfully to your question, Adam. Arlie Russell Hochschild's book, Strangers in Their Own Land. The idea, you know, there is that she, as an anthropologist, she goes to what, I think like Louisiana or somewhere and embeds herself for like a year with with people who voted overwhelmingly for Romney. It was like the, the, the highest concentration of Romney voters in the country. So she's like, I've got to go there and I've got to study these people and find out what's going on with them. And what she finds are people who do not believe themselves to be racist per se, but people who believe that basically the, the, the rules of the game that liberals, you know, people like you or me or whoever, right, with their policies to try to correct the injustices of society, racism, gender, you know, perverse gender outcomes, etc. You know, that, that these people are basically distorting the rules of the game. Everything would be fine. The market would be fine. Financial crises would not happen if only people doubled down on the rules of the marketplace, right? And, and saw themselves responsibly, embraced the responsibility to see themselves as forms of human capital. So... It sounds kind of weird because it sounds like you're almost saying like these people aren't racist, yet the things that they say are so clearly racist. But I think we have to abide with that for a little moment because somewhere in that kind of ambiguity, there's a very important political corrective for us uh, that I think maybe you might want to talk about more on the B side. But for now, though, I think where, where we can say Foucault has brought us, where Martin Konings has brought us, because of course, Martin Konings is someone who has written a lot about American Tea Party uh, and his writings about the Tea Party, uh, I think are very complementary to Arlie Russell Hochschild's writings. What we do end up sort of seeing is that this our, our commitment to neoliberalism is itself a kind of tragic attachment. Our commitment to human capital as something that's inherent within us is a kind of tragic attachment. It hurts us. The, the more we believe in it, it hurts us. It's, it's you know, it, it's it's the thing in us that makes us the lemmings running ourselves off the cliff, right? But on the other hand, if if we don't understand the kind of rationality of it, right, we're lost. Um, because it's not simply a prejudice, you know, it's, it's not simply that th these people are saying racialized things as a form of prejudice. They're saying them because there's a, there's a coherent set of rules that actually makes sense from a certain point of view, that have a rationality from a certain point of view. And, they're, and they're that internally you know, consistent. Yeah. And that and that if you pursue them in an idealistic sense, you know, at least from their perspective, would lead to a moral redemption of a whole society. And and that's neoliberalism's promise. And I think if we're losing sight of that, then 
we we haven't got a proper account and we're not doing justice to the complexity of it. Now, I know, uh, you know, Quinn Slobodian and others are, have done really interesting work on sub-genealogies of neoliberalism, like the Murray-Rothbard kind of stuff. And I, I find that fascinating. And I've yet to fully reflect on and integrate how that belongs into my own analysis. Uh, that remains to be seen. But... Um, but just if, if we just stay with the mainstream neoliberalism, I think there's there's still a, a ways in which we can say that this thing is confessional and it's not quite an authoritarian project just yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It requires. Well, I mean, it's it's quite literally the opposite of an authoritarian project. It's a project that we all participate in willingly and in th- even enthusiastically, such that. Sure, it has authoritarian outcomes insofar as uh, certain populations, you know, <laughs> you know, at best getting the short end of the stick, at worst, um, you know, potentially you know, being being eliminated or exterminated in some horrific act of ethnic, racial, or, or other classed violence. But yeah, I think this is this is a much more fruitful approach to neoliberalism if we're if we want to think about not only how how it exists what kind of life it has in 2019, but how we, we might work to extricate it. And yeah. Move so that's your next a, question, right? To a post neoliberal society. Right. So how do we, how do we avoid then all of this, this, this really fascinating, but also horrific way that neoliberalism has hitched its wagons. As I keep saying, cause I fucking hate co-opt. I'm not going to say co-opt Nick. I'm not going to say it. People. Do I know it. you guys, I know you guys want me to say it. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> neoliberalism has hitched its wagons onto our, our emotional and psychosocial uh, relationships and ways of orienting to self and others and objects even. It seems all-encompassing. It seems like all is lost. It seems like we should all just sort of kick back in a bunker somewhere, drink a lot of Stoli vodka and, uh, you know, die of cirrhosis at a young age because who fucking cares? Uh and I think that a lot of people, we're going to talk about this on the B side, I think a lot of people who consider themselves passionately on the left have so, sort of fallen prey to that feeling or that impulse that all is lost and, and there's, what can you do? You look around you and, and even the good guys aren't so good anymore and, and, and so on and so forth, not to signpost too much. How then do we extricate this neoliberal society from from the world that could be and the world that we're trying to create in the here and now, uh, you know, i.e. post-neoliberal society? Well, I, I think the I don't know the answer to the question, to be honest, but uh, I, th- I think I can sort of maybe suggest some some um, footholds. And, and one of them, I think, is to actually kind of argue against myself, because everything that I've been saying so far explains austerity, explains the success of neoliberalism, via this thing, this this icon called money, or this mechanism, this technology called the capitalist confession, right? You know, our confessional relationship to capitalism. And, and that does sort of leave us in a very despondent place, right? Disaffected place, because what kind of power do we have against that? That's very all-consuming. That's very much uh, a sort of an argument where we we come away from it sounding like you know we, we've we've basically been emotionally and intellectually absorbed uh to to avoid using the word co-opted um or, or, or defeated even right? yeah in the yeah face defeated. Of this all-encompassing you know all-powerful force yeah yeah and and all of a sudden we're all of us left 
feeling like Patti Smith and hypernormalization, where the the only really politics left to us is seen in kinds of terms of micro everyday transgression and you know aren't I so great? Look at look, I'm wearing super skinny jeans today or something like this. Or or, being, being tragically hip, yeah, Just yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, now the thing to avoid here, Adam, I think, is condescension, and it's so easy. I, I do it, but there's a there's an author out there, French guy. Love his book on it's called The Willing Slaves of Capitalism. I'd recommend it to anyone. His name is Frederick Lordon. And he is really deep into this sort of meta-level debate about voluntary servitude, right? Will to be a willing slave of capital. What does it really mean? And as you know, he, he as you spend time reading him, he he reminds you constantly that. It is voluntary servitude insofar as there is a project of making us love capitalism, but it's voluntary servitude with a gun pointed at our head. Now, he instead of approaching, this is the interesting thing, right? And this is why it's important not to be hung up on neoliberalism, because his approach doesn't start really with neoliberalism. His approach starts with management literature, <laughs> right? And... And how management literature, especially in the factory, but also in other workplaces in our moment, you know, which is a moment of worker, you know, paying, paying kind of lip service to notions of worker participation and this kind of stuff, right? You know, how this moment wants you to come to the meeting of the workers and say, you know, what your feelings are and everyone to listen and to, you know, to, to feel like the, the company's listening to you. And also to sort of talk about like what's derailing your attention today, like you know what you know. Well, what could you do a little better today to be more um, focused on your work? You know, like how could we solve this problem together? Let's let's flesh that out. Let's have a struggle session about it. You know, <laughs> so it's like it's it's got, it's got really interesting that way. So so I think um, there is a way in which you know capitalism is still innovating um, technologies that keep us very much kind of internally focused, you know, if there are problems in our lives in capitalism, there's a technology that arguably has little or nothing to do with neoliberalism, but where we are internalizing our own sort of uh, questioning of the system, right? In other words, it becomes a questioning of, our, of ourselves. Uh, Lourdan refers to this as something like the girlfriend experience, right? Which is, um, yeah. I, I guess, a, a, a sort of a tell our non chapo listening audience out there what the girlfriend experience is. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I suppose it's a. I might be the wrong person to explain this, but the um, my understanding is that it's a kind of an off. It's a it's a type of prostitution where you can literally hire someone who's a your girlfriend. You know that it's it's not just for sex. It's to be on your arm to give you love, uh, attention, to, 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 be, to snuggle up to the Netflix yeah. and, and yeah. talk to Netflix and say, talk about how your day was and, and yeah. that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the girlfriend experience is uh, an interesting kind of figure here because um, on the one hand, you know, emotionally she has, he, I'm, I'm using she here. I'm, I'm sure there are male versions of the girlfriend experience, but the, um, the, the the woman in question is is having to kind of keep herself emotionally invested. She's she's reading you uh, in a nonlinear fashion, um, mirroring your needs, you know, anticipating your needs, kind of like 
and uh, Hart and Negri sometimes, I think, are Paolo Verno, I can't remember who, but also, you know, I'm kind of veering into autonomous Marxist territory here, but, you know, have sometimes talked about the sex chat phone worker in this way. But, you know, it's an interesting type of labor because it um, of what it sort of suggests or implies about the intelligence of the person working, right? The person carrying out the labor. Now, cynically, of course, and Lordon reminds us, you know, that if the girlfriend in the girlfriend experience isn't doing her job well, she's not going to have bread on her table that night. And so she'll go hungry, right? So there's a kind of a deep cynicism in all of this. Nevertheless, I think there's potentially a horizon of possibility there. It's, it's the one thing that I kind of maybe feel offers us a way out of this is, is that the types of work that we're being involved in today do seem to presuppose workers who are not dead, you know, like not mentally asleep, uh, you know, that, that, that even the, the so-called, um, you know, gamified Uber worker, there's another great example, right? Is expected to have certain self-critical capacities to, to kind of do the job effectively. And one has to wonder, I mean, and there's definitely a whole school of thought out, out there on this and autonomous Marxists, I suppose would be one expression of that, but that that season all of that the ability to to have a reckoning uh, w- with all of this stuff and to 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 put it under scrutiny that's not answering your question that's a shitty yeah. answer to your question no <laughs> not a one hey, about like post neoliberalism look look these, these are uh, giant i don't expect us to to carve out a post neoliberal society exactly what that's going to look like in the next you know 5 or 10 minutes before we have to wrap up this a side but but no i i i just i i pause there for a minute because it's just it's so fucking fascinating to think about the girlfriend experience and how that really defines our our subject position as workers in in neoliberal capitalism you know uh because on the one hand you know you, there's there's this there's this investment there's this sort of uh expectation to be emotionally invested and if you are in that position and and uh you know you're your John, for lack of a better word, is telling you about their day. And, you know, you have to, oh, yeah, sweetie, tell me, oh, your boss, you know, must be such a dick or whatever, you know. You really have to invest yourself in this way. Give quite, like, explicitly emotional labor, which is a word I don't like. But it's labor because they're actually, it is a labor relation in this particular context. It's There's a wage labor relation going on. So, yeah, you have to give your emotional labor at work. As as a as a, a, a an essential component of the wage you know uh, uh, relationship, and and yet you know there's also that that uh, metaphorical gun to your head as Lord Don talks about in in terms of that's why it is that we ultimately invest ourselves. Some of us are are, are better at sort of feeling that cold steel of the gun up against the back of our head than others. Others are convinced that you know this this is their true vocation. Uh, I look at the YouTube comments to the latest YouTube video that I, I did about, um, you know, where profit comes from in capitalism, like, you know, hint, it's exploitation. And people say, what do you mean? It's not exploitation. People take, you know, capitalist entrepreneurs take risks and they deserve to be rewarded. And yeah, it's just like it's all of this, you know, really uh, capitalist uh, neoliberal apologetics that you get. And it's very clear that those people don't feel the gun to their head or maybe they don't until it's too late and they lose their ass in like the third you know, business venture that they, 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 they forged out on and then they, you know, adopt a drug habit and it's too late. And then they're just one of neoliberals casualty, uh, neoliberalism's casualties. If that is, if they don't have a trust fund to fall back on, which by the way, most entrepreneurs do. <laughs> That's just statistics folks. 
Um, lots, lot, a lot to put on the table here. So I think like what I, the reason why I, I tied the post neoliberal society question to the public ownership and democratic, uh, management of society is twofold. On the one hand, we're really getting to the brass tacks here. It's a shame I always bury these nuggets at the end of the episode. I hope people are still listening. It's twofold. Number one, um, I, I think that it's only through these projects of public ownership and, and worker self-management in society that we have the potential to refigure those structural relationships that 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 tie us into these uh, wounded attachments, that tie us into these um, uh, sort of em- emotionally, psychosocially uh, manipulative relationships with with work and self and others and objects. And, um, and, and I think that's, that's the real exciting material way of getting out of these ideational and, and emotional jailhouses, really. That yeah, maybe I'll just, um, represents. maybe um, I would just even but, sort of back, jump in and back you up to a little bit there, because I mean, I think, I think that actually is the missing component of the answer that I gave you. I mean, there I am sort of talking about the embers of a strategic optimism, um, in uh, the girlfriend experience or something like this, right? But actually, really, what 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 are we talking about there? We're talking about uh, a, a capacity, uh, an ability, uh, which could be channeled to so much more, right? And so when you talk about the co-op or when you talk about worker-owned projects or you talk about greater democracy within state-owned projects, you, you've been doing so many great episodes on this lately, um, they remind me of a piece I read um, a few years ago by a wonderful scholar uh, by the name of Gene Holland, uh, Eugene Holland. Uh, he has a book um, called The Slow Motion General Strike. Now, I wouldn't recommend it for everyone. It's he's he's deep in Deleuze, right? Like, but he's strongly anti-capitalist guy. I mean, you know, and and what is this slow motion general strike? It's it's a it's a piecemeal exodus. It's a it's a it's a slow motion. You know, in the sense, and, and it's just slow motion in the sense of like, you know, as you said at the start of the show, capitalism won't just end with a bang, right? It's not just, you know, we're, it's here to stay uh, for a little while longer. The change that we seek will come in piecemeal fashion, reform here, reform there, you know, breaking down the commodification of our lives in, in various ways until possibly some critical mass is achieved or, or maybe not, you know, maybe, maybe markets, capitalist markets stay in a longer term sense. But the non-reformist reforms can open spaces, the worker ownership, the, even the co-ops. And the co-ops are going to be important at the end because, in a sense, they are what I call them, I would call them um, incubators for anti-capitalist confidence. I would, you know, a, a fancier theorist than me might say subjectivity there. But I actually think subjectivity is not the point. It's not, at the end of the day, you know, that, that idea of the gun at our heads in our false consciousness is important. We're, we're forced into having a false consciousness <laughs> because if we don't, we go hungry. Right. So, you know, it's, this, isn't the, it's, this it, isn't the matrix people. Yeah. And we don't have the confidence to think we can organize it and do it on our, on, on our own, you know? Um, so these projects do have their role to play in, 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 in sort of shifting the societal wide gestalt that that gets us, I think, to something like a post-capitalist, post-neoliberal, excuse me, to use your term, much more important term, I think, post-neoliberal society. So it's it's not so much authoritarian neoliberalism that we need to be fighting, I would contend at the end of the day, but neoliberal authoritarianism. And there's a huge uh, amount at stake. And, and I think that's what we've been discussing this yeah. episode. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so much more to say there. But just we can uh, let me get out my second point here. The, the second reason I, I've been tying this post neoliberal society question with the public ownership and the democratic management of society is that I think you hinted at it just a moment ago. And this is something that, oh, for good and ill, Foucault was very concerned about. Um, and, and sometimes I think he went a little overboard, but uh, we can talk about that here in a moment. Is that uh, there's a fear that even inside of socialist organizations, even inside of, say, democratic, democratically managed enterprises, even inside of these imaginative efforts to overcome neoliberalism, you risk sort of duplicating or just replicating maybe more precisely neoliberal social relationships, both to others, uh, neoliberal uh, you know, relations to self which are probably the most important ones, to be honest, the thing that keeps neoliberalism pumping, uh, despite all of the uh, obvious uh, crises that we face. It's that relationship to self that is that is imposed upon us, which is what Foucault puts his finger on most successfully. And, and, and you know, he looks at the French PCF, the French Communist Party there to in the 1970s to lay out how the this neoliberal mode of power uh, reproduces itself in spaces that are ostensibly or, or nominatively anti-neoliberal. And that's where, you know, I think this critique gets is, is on the one hand very important, but also we need to be careful because this is where I think a lot of the people who are who are maybe <laughs> a little bit too addicted to to edginess online, perhaps fall prey to that everything is neoliberalism what can you do throw your hands in the air uh you know i guess we'll just post angrily on twitter until uh that we get swallowed by the sun type of um type of attitude or posture or what have you what do you make of that second one that that risk if we don't delineate and really fully understand neoliberalism as it exists in 2019 in our society that it risks overdetermining our efforts at things like democratic self-management there's no doubt that that attention to neoliberalism is necessary you know it, it does exist as an intellectual project it has been validated taken up amplified by various uh, intellectuals and policymakers at various levels it has achieved in this fashion a type of hegemony uh, but again, I would just sort of underline that I think um, for our emancipatory project, focusing only on these ideas and the success of these ideas will perhaps not achieve much for us. Um, there is a way in which these ideas are dependent on a pre-existing process of, of, of sort of capitalist interpret interpolation, uh, to use an old term. And the confidence that we're looking for, the, the reasons to be cheerful that we're looking for, are not going to be found on the sort of discursive terrain, I think, um, sort of excoriating everything and everyth everyone and everything out there that disagrees with us as neoliberal. The seeds of our optimism are to be found in the workplace, in the complexities and in the contradictions of the way late capitalist labor is playing out as it plows ever deeper into our bodies and into our brains to find surplus value in them. It is, I think, or can be said to be 
transforming the kind of work we do and therefore presupposes that workers are all the more skilled, all the more capable of taking on these kinds of work um, in self-governed fashion. And it is in that potential for self-government that I see the connection with the kinds of projects you've been talking about lately, Adam, the the co-ops, the, the, the worker-owned projects, the worker democracy in, in state industries. These are potentially workplaces that can do so much more for us as, as living creatures, where it's not just work that we're doing when we're present there, that we are debating with each other, deliberating with each other on how to be new kinds of citizens, you know, how to take seriously the challenge that Marxism ultimately presents us, which is not just how to live a, a politically democratic life, but how to live an economically democratic life. What does it mean to be uh, an economic citizen in a, in a uh, or a democratic citizen in an economic republic, if you will? Uh, that's probably a really crude way to put it, but uh, it, it's just so important, I think, that we that we uh, understand the need for confidence in the face of these kinds of things that really people don't want to do, because it's always this question, you know, of like, what do you mean economic democracy? Does that mean I'm going to have to, you know, who, who's going to take out the trash? <laughs> if, um, you know, who, who's going to collect the rubbish, the rubbish bins, uh, uh, the trash cans, if um, in, in an economic democracy, you know, who's going to want to do that work? And, and I think only a very unconfident person says that, you know, because that, those questions are actually really easy. Well, this was a nice in, uh, entree into you know, thinking about neoliberalism, thinking about how it impacts it impacts us, but also connecting those um, those sort of disciplinary, uh, social regulate regulative mechanisms of neoliberalism with uh, our our material relations of production, i.e., political economy, sort of wielding them both hand in hand to think about. How, on the one hand, neoliberalism is is such an intractable thing, uh, and on the other hand, it's tied to historical and material decisions. To to put it somewhat crudely, but also you know explicitly, decisions made by actual people, such that if we made other decisions, <laughs> uh, you know, things might be a little different. Uh, now, would would they be? Would you know? Are we? This is why I like. Uh, post-neoliberalism as a concept because it gives us a way of thinking out of our neoliberal hellscape without also requiring that that next stop on the the train must be full communism, you know, <laughs> yeah. full space luxury communism or what have you in, in this sort of uh, prefigurative utopian sort of way such that if we can't immediately eradicate the logic of capital and the, the logic of value and, and the rest of it that that these these projects aren't worth undertaking, they will have contradictions. Uh, that's that's just uh, the nature of life and action in the world, and particularly capitalism. Capitalism has its own set of unique contradictions, and yet we have to forge a way out of this neoliberal hellscape. And what is that going to look like, very concretely? And uh, this is all highly speculative. And I've appreciated you coming along along this journey with me. And I know that you're a guy I can turn to. Uh, when we when I need someone to talk about you know neoliberalism and Foucault very seriously, but any parting words for the people with respect to how neoliberalism affects us in 2019, what it looks like, and 
And, you know, let's speculate really quickly. What what does the Bernie Sanders movement, that, that wave, that political wave have in store for reconfiguring these social relationships that have been so, uh, God, fuck it, co-opted by neoliberalism for the past mm. 35 years? Mm. Yeah, it's a really important question, actually, because uh, I think a lot of my fellow travelers on the I don't know if I want to call it like the Foucauldian left or something like that. Right. But like, you know, you know, let's, let's, let's just say what it is, you know, stuffy university professors in ivory towers who have maybe uh, been so uh, used to the defeat since the 1970s of any kind of basis for, for social optimism that, you know, you can kind of end up stuck in these uh, armed parlor games of, 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 you know, exploring various kinds of deconstructive discourse theorists Derrida, et cetera, et cetera. You know, like, and I, I think we've been so used to turning to our intellectual influences, Foucault, et cetera, to, to, to sort of find advice in how to survive these, these times, you know, uh, when we're, we're so trapped, we're, we're so stuck that, uh, you know, that, 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 that we've, that we've tended to read them a certain way. And I think, what we're what we're finding now actually is that especially with people like Foucault that there's there's actually no there's nothing in Foucault himself that really requires you to read him that way um yeah he he celebrates micro forms of power and he appreciates micro forms of resistance but you know if you look at his life his own politics if you look at you know his his work uh where he talks different times about the need to 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 fight capitalism and above all if you look at the pages in his lectures where he sort of invites us to think about something that he calls socialist governmentality he says it hasn't been invented yet um i read that very much as an invitation to think about socialist strategy i read that as an invitation to think specifically about entering the state not as a fetishized kind of um uh, phenomena that we must be sort of terrified of being absorbed within. Uh, he he often talked about the state as an indigestible meal. Like he just didn't want to get into get into debates with people about it. I don't think that that means that he was somehow opposed to using the state. I think he was speaking more to anarchists there. To be honest, um, uh, he he what he was saying in that moment, I think, was that, look, that the state isn't a total total entity. I think there's someone, there's a Foucault there that's very sympathetic to someone like Miliband, um, you know, who who refused what he called official Marxism and and, uh, invited us into sort of a much more diverse set of strategies uh, to, to to challenge and to take on capitalism. So, Socialist governmentality, I think, is a, is an interesting um, invitation from Foucault, one that has never really been explored systemically, as I've been able to uh, figure it out. Anyway, um, so you know, the, the, I think the, ter- the I think the moment is is potentially very rich uh, for this kind of work um, because you know, at the end of the day, reading Foucault, you know, you 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 don't end up in a place that's all that different from the type of politics that someone like your previous guest Leo Panitch might articulate right it's it's at the end of the day it's it's just a slightly more nuanced way the contribution is that it's a more nuanced way of understanding how subjectivity and how power operate 
in this moment of austerity, why we continue to go along with it. Um, but what it, what it isn't is necessarily a rebuttal of any kind of state strategy. What it isn't is uh, a call for uh, despondency um, or, or cynicism or, um, you know, flannerism. In, in fact, what, what it is, I think, is potentially, um, given that, that, that so much has been done since Foucault's time on how the technologies that capitalism uses to, to, to produce our own sort of subservience also imply a tremendous set of skills and capacities on the part of workers that are, you know, frankly, you know, accelerating, you know, that workers are incredibly educated, you know, compared to how they used to be. Workers are um, capable of programming, they're linguistically trained. So there's a, there's, there's, there's a wide range of skills and capacities that workers have today that they didn't have before. And I just can't help but wonder myself if, if, if there's, if there's some sort of confidence that should be drawn from that as we start to, and I'm wondering if there's, it's, if it's even maybe symptomatic, even in your own show that we're starting now, uh, you know, to, to, to consider democratic workplaces as, as a site for resisting capitalism. Well said, well said. Hopeful stuff, tentative, of course. Thanks again for coming along for this ride. Uh, Nick Kiersey, professor of political science at University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. He's writing on neoliberalism and Irish uh, austerity and financial crisis. Let's move it along to the B side. We're going to take some of these insights that we have tentatively forged uh, about neoliberalism and post-neoliberalism to talk about uh, the ups and the downs of the socialist movement inside the United States. Uh, much, much has been remarked about the DSA convention. You yourself, Nick, were a delegate at that convention. I was. So we're going to, uh, for the B side, we're going to recoup the results. Uh, we're going to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly, and try to forge out a posture, uh, much in keeping with what we've been discussing for over the past hour uh, today, of, of what does a pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will in a Gramscian sense, look like? And how do we forge that and avoid the traps of bending the stick too far in one direction versus the other? Everybody look out for that. Become a patron to access that B-side at www.patreon.com slash deadpundits. Uh, support DPS Media. I think what we do is very unique. Uh, I know Nick uh, would agree with me there. Longtime listener support, supporter of the show as well. Uh, you guys are definitely going to want to hear Nick's insights on this because he was at the convention and he's got the inside scoop. Nick Kiersey, thanks again for joining us on the ASAP.